Christianity says your body has great value and dignity as the handiwork of God. And even it's, what's fascinating is that even secular people are starting to recognize that this is the issue. I, I read an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years, from age 11, and then at age 14 recovered her identity as a girl. And she said, the turning point came, and this is a direct quote, she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And I'm on the roll. It's watering time, everybody! It is time for Apollo Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with professor, author, and apologist Nancy Piercy. How should we as Christians approach the subjects of transgenderism, homosexuality, abortion, and the like? How do we talk about these things with those who disagree with us? How do we find common ground? And how do we get people to see God's design for the body? Enter Nancy Piercy. Nancy is the author of Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality. Her earlier books include The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, How Now Shall We Live, co-authored with Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson, and Total Truth. Her books have been translated into nine languages. She is professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. A former agnostic herself, she has spoken now at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth. She was highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today and was hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And now she is on Apollos Watered. We discuss her background, her family, Francis Schaefer, Labrie, transgenderism, abortion, euthanasia, and our bodies and why they matter, as well as how our modern world really doesn't value the body as much as they think. Nancy is an incredible writer and conversation partner, and we are honored to have her on the show because this issue is everywhere. It's easy to condemn online or just lob some verbal grenades here and there, but it's another thing to engage on behalf of the gospel, to see those who are dealing with such issues as God does, loving them so that they may see and know Christ. I hope that this first part of the conversation helps equip you to know how to have conversations with your family, friends, colleagues, and classmates. Happy Listen. Nancy Piercy, welcome to Apollos Watered. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Okay, bring it on. Here we go. First one, violin or fiddle? <laughs> violin. <laughs> I played the violin. Uh, fiddle is quite different. The technique is quite different. The style is quite different. And I, I like it, but I'm a classically trained musician. Okay, then Bach or Beethoven? That's not one of the questions, but I just want to know. Bach. 
Absolutely. Bach. I actually don't like Beethoven very much. I like the early <laughs> Beethoven, but not the later Beethoven. Um, but Bach, a, a violinist should play a little bit of Bach every day. It, that it just it just trains you. It just trains you in a way nothing else does. So how did you go from violin to, well, well, we'll get back to that because I want to know how you went from violin into apologetics, but we're going to get back to that. So here's the second question. Francis Schaeffer or C.S. Lewis? Oh, you know, Schaefer had a bigger influence on my life. And I'll tell you why. His form of apologetics spoke to me like no other apologetics did when I was a non-Christian. Um, uh, Schaefer's form of apologetics has been called cultural apologetics because mm -hmm. he looked at ideas as they percolate down through cultural forms like art and music and literature, movies. Um, and I was a violinist, so I was very much attracted to somebody who could show how Christian truth related to the cultural world, to the, to the arts. That was very attractive to me. So definitely I was more influenced by Schaefer. Although after I discovered Schaefer, I found out about Lewis. And of course, um, I teach a class on Lewis and Schaefer because the two of them together, put them both, the best of both together. And you, that's, that's how you learn apologetics. That's awesome. You're in Houston. You teach at Houston Baptist University, correct? Yeah, that's right. that's right. Okay. You were married, though, in Apple Valley, Minnesota. So Houston, Texas, or Apple Valley, Minnesota? Oh, Minnesota wins. <laughs> 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 Why? Minnesota's beautiful. I, I went to school for, uh, in Minnesota, southern Minnesota for a while, and it was just gorgeous. The trees, the greenery, uh, everything was beautiful. Houston is hot and humid, okay? I mean, as far as a place to live... Um, it, it, it's not really attractive, but Minnesota is beautiful. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's great. Okay. How about this one? Now you've spoken in front of thousands of people. What is the strangest experience you've ever had in your speaking career? <laughs> that is a hard one to answer. Um, if I, let me change it from strange to, um, special. <laughs> what was really special um, was I was invited to speak to the international CMDA, that's Christian Medical and Dental Association. And, uh, and it was, so it was, it was via Zoom. So via Zoom, I got to, these are Christian doctors all around the world, 50 some different countries. And I, I got a chance to address all of them on, on the issues in my book, Love Thy Body. So that yeah. was just such a gift to be on online and, you know, on the chat box, uh, mm -hmm. chats were coming in from Nepal, you know, and from uh, <laughs> Gambia and all kinds of places. So it, it was a unique experience. Awesome. Okay. All right, here we go with final question. What is the oddest habit that your husband or sons say you have? I live in my head. That's, my, that's, uh, that's what my husband says. You live in your head. Because I'm always reading, always researching, always writing. You know, I, I really live in the world of ideas. And, but that's his favorite phrase. When, when he gets frustrated with the fact that I'm always in a book, he'll say, you just live in your head. So, that, that's the first thing that comes to mind. 
Give us a bit of your story. Who is Nancy Piercy and how did you get to where you are today as an apologist and writer for the Christian faith? Well, I was raised actually in a Christian home. Uh, mm. It was a Lutheran home. My parents were both Scandinavian. So I, don't, I don't know if you know that it's it's a little like uh, yeah, all, all Scandinavians are Lutheran in the same way that all Irish yes. are Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> So unfortunately, what that meant was when I got to high school and started asking questions, you know, nobody could answer mm. them because they really weren't thinking that way. They weren't thinking in terms of apologetics. And I was attending a uh, you know, public high school. So all my teachers are secular. All my textbooks are secular. In fact, I didn't have a single Christian friend in high mm. school. Um, I didn't know anyone who was Christian. <laughs> and if they were, they didn't they weren't telling you, you know, this was in uh, the 1970s. And some people tell me uh, it was actually the late 60s, but um, some people tell me that was perhaps the time when America was the most secularized. We didn't mm. have things like Young Life and so on, you know, for ministries for high school kids. At any rate, so I started just asking, how do we know Christianity is true? That was it. I just wanted to know, how do we know Christianity is true? And none of my parents or pastors could answer that question. I asked mm. a Christian university professor, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. <laughs> and I said, that's it? You know, because it's not working for me anymore. Um, mm. And I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean, Lutheran, and um, I thought I'd get a more substantial answer. But all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. As mm. if it was psychological phase that I was going mm. through. So eventually I decided Christianity must not have any answers. And I very intentionally set it aside. I decided it was up to me to find out what was true, that I would have to research all the religions and philosophies out there and decide for myself which one was true, which is a pretty big task for a 16-year-old. But I literally started walking down the hallway to the library in the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought, where else do people talk about this? Um, isn't that what philosophers are supposed to do, right? How do we tell, how do we know truth? And uh, is there meaning to life? Is there a purpose to life? Is there a foundation for ethics? Um, mm. And so on. And I pretty rapidly realized that if there was no God, then the answer to all of these questions was no, no, there is no purpose to life. Uh, there is no foundation for ethics. It's just, you know, true for me, true for you. Um, there, I realized there was no even no foundation for knowledge because if all I have is my puny brain and the vast scope of time and history and space, how, how, could I, how could I expect that I could know any sort of universal, objective, absolute truth? Ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It struck me as obviously ridiculous. So I became a, a, a total skeptic and relativist. I didn't have the words for it yet, but that's, what I, that's where I stood. And in fact, when I had... Um, I can remember a conversation I was having with a friend from school and she, and she was speaking about another person and she said, oh, what she's doing is so wrong. And I said, you can't say anybody's wrong. <laughs> there's, mm. there's no such thing as right or wrong. So by the time I went to Labrie, which is uh, a couple years later, I did end up at Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And I was going to school in Europe because we had lived there when I was a kid. And mm. so I wanted to go back. And Labrie is in Switzerland. So this was the first time I encountered 
any form of apologetics. I had no idea that Christianity could be defended with good reasons and arguments and logic and evidence. Mm. I was blown away. I had never heard any of this. And of course, as I said earlier, in addition to that, Schaefer was really uh, good at, uh, he's, he was well known for supporting the arts. Right? So he was, a, he was a place where they were artistically sensitive as well as being intellectually challenging. Uh, and, and in addition, by the way, um, this was 1971 and all the students were hippies. So, mm. so this was, uh, back then, hippies were the cool kids. So I, I, <laughs> I, I just wondered, who are these Christians? Because they're even, they're even able to reach across that cultural divide and connect with these disaffected young people. Um, in fact, I was so impressed. I was so impressed with Labrie that I left. I was mm. uh, after only a month. I left because I was. I, I felt such pressure, internal pressure, not external. Uh, so much pressure to find out, to to figure out if this was true or not. And I needed to just get away in order to think about it. But because of my time at Libri, I discovered apologetics. I continued reading Schaefer. Oz Guinness, I think, had come out with his first book by then. I discovered C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton. And so uh, just through my reading on my own, I decided I was intellectually convinced it was true. Hmm. See, I was The reason I left is because I was afraid I might be drawn in emotionally because it was such an attractive version of Christianity. I'd never seen anything like it. And I didn't want to be drawn in emotionally. After all, Christianity had already left, let me down once before. And so mm. I did not want to take that step unless I was absolutely convinced it was you know, intellectually that it was true. So I did come to that point, but I wasn't involved with the church or anything. So I thought, so I, just on my own, I, you know, I, I read mm. my way back to God. <laughs> um, mm. And I, I thought, okay, this is cool, but where do I find other Christians now? I said, well, I knew some at Labrie. <laughs> so a year and a half later, I went back to Labrie. And then that time I stayed four months and really got, that's how I really got grounded in my understanding of Christian worldview. And so since that was such an important part of my own conversion, that, mm. that became my life work, you know, is to help, help other young yeah. people who are having the kind of questions that I had and help them to, to see that there really are good reasons uh, for becoming a Christian. And it's, it's not just a blind faith. You know, it's not just, um, you, know, you know, when I started having questions, uh, Christians around me treated it as if it was a moral failing on my part, like something is wrong with you, mm. that you don't have faith. Well, as Schaefer used to say, we, we are obligated to give honest answers to honest questions. And so mm. uh, that's, that's one of my guiding principles. Mm. And then you met your husband there? Yes. Yeah, I met my husband at Libri the second time I was there. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. And he's from Germany, is that right? He was born in Germany um, of a German mom and a, uh, an American soldier who abandoned her. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so um, he was a war orphan in a sense. He went, so his, his, his mother put him in an orphanage. There was no way you could, there was no way um, in post-war Germany with the economy in shambles that a single mom could survive. And so mm. she was advised by her priest to put him up for adoption. So he did, and mm. he was adopted by an American service couple. Um, and so then uh, they eventually, then they brought him back to the States when they came back. Wow. 
And then you had two boys and then just that, right after that launched into the career. And you've done so many different things. Just reading through your biography, I got tired because <laughs> it was going on so long and it was so extensive. Matter of fact, you got into a title that I'm pretty amazed at where it says that you were America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female elect intellectual. That's a lot of verbiage and that's a heavy title. Tired. That's you quite an tired. honor. You get tired just saying that, right? <laughs> well, I want to know how you get that title. And is it possible for me to get the male version or at least get it on a T-shirt? Something like that. <laughs> but it's a it's a pretty honorific, amazing title. And I think it's well-deserved. Reading your, your books and especially this book, Love Thy Body. And I, let's talk about that for a moment because I read through the book and it's pretty phenomenal. Um, and I want to take... Before we go on, I just wanted want sure. you to, to say that that title was in The Economist. It was not even in a Christian... <laughs> So it wasn't uh, your, it wasn't one you came up with. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, um, <laughs> was it an article? Yeah, that would be pretty funny if I, if I came up with my own title. It was an article in The Economist. I mean, people have to, that's a well-respected secular journal. So yeah. it was an article on, uh, you know, even American evangelicalism, where they were trying to explain some things to the British audience, because The Economist is a British um, publication. So, right. so that's, that's, uh, and the, uh, the, the reporter quoted me and, and then she, she's the one who gave me that title. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think when you first saw that title? Like, Oh no. Or I didn't know that's she was nice. That. <laughs> no, I had no has idea. Anyone, has your husband been like, does he ever call you that when he's mad? <laughs> <laughs> he gets frustrated with you. Oh, no, no, no. So, <laughs> Not at all. Not no. at all. And the kids remind you, right? Your sons remind you that, hey, that's not that. Mom, you might be that, but you're still mom to me. Yes. So, the kids are totally unimpressed, let me tell you. <laughs> Isn't that how it is? A, a prophet is it without honor in his own house <laughs> or her own house. In, in, in her own kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we have Love Thy Body, and it's a fantastic book. I've read the book, and I have underlining all over it. I, I've written notes everywhere. It's a phenomenal book. And I have to say, when I, when, I, when I first saw it, I thought it was simply you were talking about transgenderism. And then when I got into it, I was surprised. I thought, well, wait a minute. She's starting with just the humanization and personhood and the body and the connection to it. But I really want to know, what was the impetus behind writing Love Thy Body? Well, since we've talked about Labrie, um, the impetus was uh, the, the, one of the main themes Francis Schaeffer uh, spoke about again and again was the division and the concept of truth. He noted mm. that you know, in, in, in most cultures, people think that there's, there's a natural order and a spiritual order, you know, spiritual mm. slash moral order, but that they're, they're integrated into a single cosmos. And therefore, truth mm -hmm. about them will be a, a integrated unity. Uh, you know, truth is an integrated unity. But uh, in Western culture, after the rise of modern science, many people began to say, no, no, the only reliable knowledge we have is of science, you know, empirical facts, what can be mm -hmm. tested in the laboratory. But what did that mean then for things that were not necessarily knowable directly by scientific methods like morality and theology and even mm -hmm. things like beauty, truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, mm -hmm. in, in essence, truth was split apart so that uh, Schaefer used to use the metaphor of two stories in a building. So on the lowest story is 
uh, science and reason and testable truths. And in the, in the upper story became a place where you toss things that uh, you can't be known by purely scientific methods. And so that's, that became uh, sort of an attic where you would toss things mm. like religion and morality and theology. And so this was a split view of truth. And it was important for Schaefer because it's, it's the main reason, uh, it's the main strategy that secularists use to discredit Christianity because they say, no, well, that belongs in the upper story. You know, so that's, that's just your personal preference. That's just you know, what goes out of your experience. That's what helps you get through the night. And he had to help people to see, I mean, he's an apologist himself and an evangelist, and he had to help people see that that is the main barrier to communicating Christian truth today because people no longer have that view of truth. They don't have a biblical view of truth. Mm -mm. They have the split view of truth. And so people unreflectively, you know, without even realizing that they're doing it, if, if you talk to them about Christian truth, they toss it in the upper story and think, they think you're only talking about your personal preference, what's meaningful mm. to you. They don't even hear it as an objective truth claim. And so you almost have to uh, take a two-step two process. Schaefer used to call it pre-evangelism. You almost have mm -hmm. to, well, I'll, I'll make it personal. When I went to Libri, I had to take this two-step process because I was such a relativist and skeptic. I had to first be persuaded that there was such a thing as objective truth before mm. I could even consider whether Christianity was that objective truth. And that's the impact of this split view of truth. In, in, the sec, in secular academia, it's called the fact-value split. And mm. Schaefer didn't use that term, um, but in my earlier book, Total Truth, I said, hey guys, <laughs> Schaefer used this you know, little upper story, lower story metaphor. You know what he's talking about? <laughs> he's talking about what we already know in secular, secular academia as the fact-value split. And then people said, oh, that's what he meant. So mm. uh, today I, I often use that language because people connect with it better. The fact-value split is more widely known. So people think Christianity's in the value realm, where it's really not a matter of true or false. It's a matter of, of, you know, what gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in your life, but it's completely subjective and relativistic. Why this subject really focus it on the body as you're talking about this fact value split? Because a lot of people, though that happens in academics, in everyday life, they don't always think that way, but they're doing it all the time. They're doing it. Yeah, yeah. My students, uh, I, when I teach in my classroom, my students say, this is the matrix. <laughs> you know, this, isn't that good? <laughs> this is the way people think and they don't know they, that they do. Yeah. The, yeah. The fact value split. And, you know, when it dawns on them, when they really re realize how extensive it is, see, your view of truth is going to affect everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, uh, so I wrote Total Truth on this split, trying to explain to Christians where it's coming from and what we need to do about it. And of course, the Christian version is the sacred secular split. So yeah, we have right. it, we have it too. Um, and and then when I went, I, when I wrote uh, Saving Leonardo, which is on the arts, mm -hmm. lo and behold, I found the same split. I wasn't necessarily looking for it, but the first art history book I picked up <laughs> said modern art has been split into two separate streams. <laughs> <laughs> And they called it, uh, this was by Jacques Bazin, who's a well-known intellectual historian. And he said he called it the naturalist stream, 
And the idealist dream, well, obviously naturalism is the lowest story, what we know as mm. science, and idealism is, you know, the upper story, you know, the world of ideas. So so right from the beginning, I realized that the upper lower story split applied to the arts as well. So then I decided I wanted to do um, morality. Mm. <laughs> and I, again, I didn't go in expecting to find this split. But as soon as I started reading, I found out, yes, all of these moral issues are also influenced by a split between the body and the person. Mm -hmm. In other words, the body is what we know by science and empirical research, but personhood is your value. So there's the fact Mm -hmm. value. Personhood is your moral status. It's whether we should give you legal protection. uh, Let me, um, well, why don't we jump in with the transgender issue, just because that's the easiest place sure. to see it um, yeah. today. And everybody knows about it today. So transgenderism basically is, uh, uh, as transgender activists themselves say, uh, they say that your gender identity has nothing to do with your biological sex, that your mm. body is not part of the authentic self. Uh, a BBC documentary put it this way. Uh, at, at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. Mm. So that's an incredible statement of you know, internal alienation. Um, in fact, um, some transgender activists say, now say the term biological sex is a hate term because it reminds them that there is such a thing as biology. Um, mm. and I, I read a, a, a book by a philosopher. I think it's the first book on a philosophical level, defending transgenderism by a Princeton University professor, because, you know, what the academics say is what eventually filters down. So I wanted to see what she would say. And the interesting thing, first of all, is that she acknowledged that transgenderism involves self-alienation, self-division, you know, that that there's a sharp divide between who you feel you are, you know, mentally and and what your biological sex is. But then Mm -hmm. she concluded that your biological sex doesn't matter. She literally said the real body, meaning the physical body, the real body tells us nothing. It has nothing to do Mm. with who we are. So what Christians should be responding is, why should we accept such a demeaning view of the body? Mm. Christianity says your body has great value and dignity as the handiwork of God. And even it's, what's fascinating is that even secular people are starting to recognize that this is the issue. I, I read an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years, from age 11, and then at age 14 recovered her identity as a girl. And she said, uh, the turning point came, and this is a direct quote, she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm. And the interview came out after my book was already published, but it would have been a great quote yeah. for a book titled Love Thy Body. Mm. But, and it was on a very secular liberal website. So that means mm. even secular people are starting to see. Um, you'll see this phrase sometimes these days. Um, transgenderism is body hatred. Body hatred. So they're starting to recognize that the issue here is you view the body as your negative mm view of the body is really at the heart of all of these moral issues that we're up against today. 
We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner with them. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. And we are back. The second part of our conversation deals more with evangelism with those who are struggling with their sexuality, identity, gender, and the like. We talk about many things. How do wrong views of sexuality and gender influence our view and understanding of the body? And it's not only in regards to gender. How does a wrong view of the body affect every area of our life or affect areas of life such as even the conception and beginning of life? When talking about the subject of abortion, how do proponents of abortion look upon life? How, how can a fertilized egg be human but not considered a person? Huh. How and where do we even get this idea of human rights? Are they intrinsic to us that we're born with them? Or are they bestowed upon them from someone else? What about subjects such as euthanasia? How does a wrong view of the body affect that? Well, in the second part of the conversation, Nancy is going to show us just that. Listen in and find out. The psychological man, uh, I think that's what Truman calls it, when he talks about the, the change between the religious man and the psychological man and finding one's identity and becoming what the authentic self. And you'd really draw that out in kind of layman's terms, which I, I thought was phenomenal. And you mentioned how people say it's courageous to come out and declare this, but at the same time, when they go back, it's not considered courageous. And it seems like people are swallowing this lie. How do we then address that with people that are in our families and our friends? I have four children, and one of them is a sophomore in high school. And she is already dealing with this with her friends. And I'd say almost one third of her friends are choosing. It's the popular thing to be by, or how could you be against it? And, or poly or pan or, or whatever it is. And I'm not sure if many of them even know what that is, but how do we then address this with our family and friends? Because I have not just my daughter facing that I've got on both sides of my family, young people that are in this world that it's just being brought to them all the time. And, and I think your goal, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's to really shine a light on it to say, this is not fixed. This is a lie we've been told. And let's get back to the biblical view of the body for when we do, we're going to really see how God has made us. But I mean, what do you say to that? How do you, how do you help people to see that? Um, well, just to focus on a particular issue, let's go to homosexuality. Um, okay. Because let's do it. Even my 
homosexual friends acknowledged mm -hmm. that on the level of biology, anatomy, physiology, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's mm -hmm. how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. Mm -hmm. To embrace a same-sex identity, therefore, is to reject that design. It's to implicitly say, why should my body have any say in who I am? Why should my biological sex influence my moral decisions? And what we have to help people to realize is that is a very disrespectful view of the body. Mm. And so the, the, the logic there is, if my body is not part of who I am, why should I, why should I let it determine my moral choices? The, there's a well-known uh, public intellectual, uh, I'm, sure who, I'm sure you know, named uh, Camille Paglia. Camille Paglia yeah, yeah. is a lesbian. By the way, she's now claiming to be transgender, but for many years she's been a lesbian feminist. And um, what, what the reason a lot of conservatives read her is because she's a bit of, a, uh, of an iconoclast. She does not accept the feminist view that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, no, yeah. no. You know, nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. Mm. So then you say, well, how do you justify being a lesbian then? And here's what she says. She uses this exact word. She says, why not defy nature? Mm. And then she says, she goes on to say, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Mm. So do you catch the logic there? If our bodies, are pro our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we're morally obligated to respect. They tell us nothing about who we are, and the mind can do with the body whatever it wants. It's perfect. That is perfectly logical from that perspective. In other words, um, if our uh, if our bodies are products of material forces, then what dignity do they really have? They're just pro products of, of natural selection. Uh, and, and and actually, this is where I push people back. When you say, "How do you deal with them?" First, I deal with having respect for your body, and then I help them to see the the underpinnings of that. Your view of morality always rests on your view of nature. Mm. Um, if it's you know if it is true, like Camille Paglia says, that our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then it makes perfect sense to say, do with it what you want. It's a, it's just a natural resource, like any other natural resource, and we can exploit it and use it, you know, for our own purposes. You know, there is no divine purpose that we're supposed to respect. The Christian viewpoint is uh, teleological. In other words, there's a purpose. It comes from the word telos, right? which means purpose. And it says that, in fact, we are made for a purpose, and science shows us that we're made for a purpose, that uh, living things, living structures are made for a purpose. Eyes are made for seeing, and ears are made for hearing. That wings are made for flying, fins are made for swimming. In fact, the development of the entire organism is directed by an inbuilt plan or blueprint. So science itself tells us that living things are made for a purpose. And what Christians are saying is that when we live in accord with that purpose, we will ultimately be happier and healthier.
you mentioned how Christians are much more satisfied, whether it's in marriage, uh, in the sexual sphere, monogamous, conservative, middle aged have the best sex lives. You actually bring that out. And I thought that was pretty impressive, uh, especially because I'm in the middle of all that line. So that made me feel pretty good right there. But um, when you address these issues and you really are, you're developing this case for the body. And you, the way you start, you talk about abortion and how people separate it between not even, you mean the name, the nomenclature that's being used and the titles and how it can be a human, but not a person. Um, and again, it's that, that bifurcated understanding of things. And, and, and that's how people are saying it. There's a separation everywhere we go. Matter of fact, you, you develop it well, where we see that separation. How do we get people to see that they are integrated and it's not one or the other, but it's both together? Well, let me go into a little more detail on abortion because I, I, that, that's where it started. You know, when I first started yeah. researching this subject, that's, I, I saw it first in abortion um, because what, m- most people don't realize this, but professional bioethicists all agree that life begins at conception. You know, mm-hmm. your next door neighbor may not be there yet, but professional bioethicists, the, ev- the evidence from science, from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that in order to support abortion? What they say is the fetus can be biologically human, genetically human, chromosomally human at some point, but it's not, it doesn't become a person until sometime later. So Mm. if you can be human at one point, but not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two separate things. And personhood is usually defined in terms of mental abilities, some level of cognitive functioning, self-awareness, and so on. And so you can easily see this is, you know, this is, again, Schaefer's upper story, lower story divide. So in the lower story, what we know by science, the, the human, you know, the human fetus is clearly human. But when we talk about personhood, we're talking about the value that we put on human life. What moral status does it have? Does it is it deserving of legal protection? So see, it, it is again the fact value split. Um, and what, so what what we have to help people see is, um, like you said, we can't we can't split it that way. You have mm. to you have to make detailed arguments that um, the the fetus is human from the beginning. Every human is a person. If you allow them to be separated out like that, then, as everybody, everybody knows, once you allow being human, being human is no longer enough for human rights, basically, is what, mm-hmm. is what bioethicists are saying. In other words, they'll acknowledge the fetus is human, but they'll say, nonetheless, you can kill it for any reason or no reason. You can tinker with it genetically. You can um, do, do research and experiments on it. Uh, you can pick... You can pick through it for sellable body parts, like Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. does, and then toss mm-hmm. it out with the other medical waste. And that is exactly mm-hmm. how medical journals refer to it, medical waste. So the upshot is being human is no longer enough for human rights. And mm-hmm. that's what people need to understand. It's because once you make that distinction, then, you know, according to the Supreme Court, if we took it absolutely logically, you and I do not have human rights. We don't have human mm. rights unless the government tells us we do. We used to think human rights, you, you and I had human rights just by the sheer fact of being part of the human race. That was enough. You know, once you're human, you're in, you count. But when the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade um, 
made the distinction between human and person, it essentially now says, you know, you don't have human rights until the government says you're a person. So we've seen where that goes. We've seen that in other places like Nazi Germany, where that goes. If certain people mm -hmm. can be uh, pronounced as non-human or less than human, it opens up the door to incredible inhumanity and, and tyranny. And, and uh, euthanasia, by the way, is the same argument, just in reverse, mm -hmm. right? So in euthanasia, the argument is, if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, you know, if you lose a certain level of, of self-awareness, then you are no longer a person. And at that point, uh, uh, as I, one bioethicist I read put it this way, you're just a body, just mm -hmm. a body. And as a result, your treatment can be withheld. Uh, your organs can be harvested. Food and water can be discontinued. So once again, being human is no longer enough for human rights. Mm. So that's, that's what we're facing today. And that's what people have to realize. The consequence of making this distinction is we've lost the notion of human rights. That is an amazing conversation. And it only gets better. We delve into issues and she has insights that are, really blow me away. And as I've really thought about this, I have come to the conclusion as Nancy indicated in the book, that if we have a wrong view of the body, that leads to complete dehumanization. And it, and it transfers into so many different areas of our lives. We know that there are so, there's so much confusion in our culture in regards to all of the stuff that we talked about, whether we're talking about LBGTQ plus issues or abortion or euthanasia, it all goes back to a wrong view of the body. And we know that the culture now is evangelizing us on these issues. And, and many within the church, we have to be quite frank here, have responded poorly. We need to be able to respond positively, redemptively, giving hope. I know that from many, they're asking, why is this happening now? We know that there's nothing new under the sun, and yet it seems different. Some say, oh, are we in the end times? Well, we've been in the end times ever since the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, and we know that God is moving all of time to his stated purpose. Could it be, though, that this issue is happening now so that God might display the power of his grace, that he's allowed this to occur, giving people over to their natural sinful inclinations in order to show the, the fruitlessness and the hopelessness involved in it? And he wants to show that his love and mercy are much greater than our own. This isn't something that we can hide from if you haven't noticed or think you're going to be immune to. None of us are. Somehow it finds a way to permeate into every single one of our families or schools or churches. How will we respond? We can't respond in the ways that we have traditionally in the past. It's easy to shout and make derogatory posts, but our hearts should be much more inclined to God's. And what God desires for all people is repentance. As we read in 2 Peter 2.9, The Lord isn't being real slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. We want repentance because there is a coming judgment, something that I shudder when I think about. God will not delay forever, which is why we are given this moment. As Paul, by the Spirit, wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter, So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. 
For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21. We plead because we love. You know, it was said that D.L. Moody was such an effective evangelist because he really felt the depth of his words and what they meant. When he would talk about hell, he would cry because he felt it for people. And people responded to that because they saw how much he really loved them. We love because he first loved us. And we preach Christ because in him alone is our hope. He was crucified for our sins on the cross. He took our sin, shame, and sicknesses upon himself. He never sinned and became the offering for our sin, but by becoming sin himself so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It's a phenomenal and life-giving truth and one that we can never, ever let go. I want to let you know that next week we have our Watering Wednesday where we discuss what happened after Paul encountered the risen Christ. It's, it's really insightful and life-giving to us. And after that, on Friday, we're going to have the second part of our conversation with Nancy Piercy, where we delve into all things LBGTQ+, abortion, euthanasia, and really it all surrounds our understanding of the body and how we can turn this and use this opportunity of the current conversation that we're in in our culture so that people might see and know Christ. It's a fantastic conversation and one that you will not want to miss. I also want to let you know that we have some exciting things happening here. We're in our Ready to Fly giving campaign where we're looking for 80, wait, nope, make that 77 new watering partners to join us before the end of the year. And here's an incentive. For those new partners, we'll be giving you an Apollos Water Drop Logo t-shirt. Sign up and someone from our team will be in contact with you to get that information. And for those who have already partnered with us, we couldn't be where we are today without you. We are on the runway, but need your help to really get into the air. If we're helping you so that you might water your world, then please consider partnering with us. We'd love to have more people grow from connecting with Apollos Watered. If you've been impacted while listening to a podcast, would you screenshot the podcast, text it to a friend, share it on stories, or simply share it directly from your podcast? platform. We'd love that. Subscribing and leaving a review also puts us out there to more people. Remember, there's also content on Instagram, Facebook, and our website that's shareable. Together, let's leave a trickle of truth and encouragement around the world and watch people grow. And last of all, a big shout out to our team that makes the dream. Kevin, Melissa, Donovan, Eliana, Rebecca, and our newest media maven, Audrey. Welcome to the team, Audrey. What are your faith? Water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.